Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce uh, a guest in the continuing series we have called Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. It's my particular pleasure today to introduce uh, Professor Miles Kaler. Miles is a distinguished professor at the School of International Service at American University. He's been at a number of premier academic institutions, including Princeton University and the University of California at San Diego. Miles is a real specialist in international relations and international political economy. So let's introduce Professor Miles Kaler. So, uh, welcome, Miles. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Alan. Glad to be here. So, in a chapter that you wrote recently called Who is a Liberal Now? This is an edited book that our colleague Amitav Acharya recently uh, put out with Cambridge. You suggested that the liberal tradition of global governance predates the American kind of predominance uh, and influence and will probably persist in a more polycentric world, that's your phrase, uh, maybe you can give us a little sense of what you were thinking of in terms of the liberal order pre-Trump. Well, I can think of, of several pillars in that order. We usually think of it as post-1945, but in the chapter that I wrote, I indicated, of course, that its roots go back much further, at least to World War I or even before World War I. You could say on the economic side, it goes back all the way to the, uh, the Enlightenment writers like Adam Smith and David Hume. But I think there, the pillars would be free trade and open markets, uh, economic exchange uh, across national borders, which have both positive political and economic effects. So that would be one pillar. Mm -hmm. Another one would be uh, in terms of global order and global organization, reliance on international law and respect for international law, as well as international institutions. I mean, clearly, global international institutions are a much more recent development than the 18th or 19th century. Those are largely a post-World War I and even post-1945 development. But I think that's that idea of a constructed global order is clearly part of the liberal world order. And, uh, and then finally, something that definitely did arrive largely after 1945, uh, respect for human rights and the mm -hmm. idea that individuals and individual human rights have a place in international law and the international order, that they aren't just the concern of states. Um, I would add a, a fourth, okay. which sometimes is conflated with sovereignty, which is sometimes seen as in opposition to certain aspects of the liberal world order. In other words, states claim sovereignty so that um, liberal norms and actors pushing liberal norms cannot intrude in their domestic politics. But I think another way of looking at that issue is self-determination mm -hmm. and the right that societies have to determine their own way of ordering themselves. And obviously that conflicts with universality and the universalism that's built into some versions of liberalism. I think there's a tension between those two. But I see self-determination as definitely part of liberalism and a very important part. And it should not be simply confused with a defense of sovereignty. Okay. Well, you've identified these uh, four or five pillars, which in effect are 
or kind of pre-American dominance of the Second World War and beyond. Mm -hmm. Do you see any of these under particular strain or stress as a result of the election of Trump? Well, complicated issue, obviously, since we are still in early days right. of a, an administration, which is in some, shall we say, turmoil at times. <laughs> so um, let's let's break that down. Uh, first, there are the beliefs of Donald Trump himself as president, which should not be simply set aside because presidents do have an effect as individuals. Uh, it's not clear that he has that many very firm beliefs, uh, but one certainly that would be of concern to the liberal order is concerns trade. I mean, he has a fairly consistent position of being very skeptical of free trade and certainly being very accommodating of protectionism when it serves what he views to be American national interest. So curiously, as a businessman, you would think that Trump would be least threatening to the liberal order on the economic side, but it seems to me in many ways that may be the place where the liberal order is most fragile under a Trump presidency. In other respects, respect for self-determination, uh, probably Trump would not be much of a threat to liberal order. At least at the present time, he seems to be more tacking toward an isolationist or at least a non-interventionist stance uh, on questions like how much we should interfere in other societies and their development. Um, very skeptical of the interventions in Iraq. Uh, even Afghanistan. So on that side, you could say self-determination, probably Trump would end up leaving countries alone. But the other side of that, of course, and this is the tension within liberalism, he's certainly not going to be a major proponent of human rights, I don't think. Mm -hmm. uh, right, right. Quite apart from his sometime admiration for authoritarian rulers around the world, he doesn't seem to have that as one of his deep sets of beliefs. And finally, on international order, uh, that's where we're still uncertain what pieces of the international order he's likely to challenge. He's very skeptical about the United Nations, clearly, as are many Republicans um, and have been for some time. He, as I've mentioned, on trade and the WTO, quite definitely a possibility that the United States could take a position of imposing trade measures outside the WTO and not respecting WTO decisions. The new trade strategy implies that that could be the case. On international financial relations, much less clear as to whether the IMF, the World Bank, and those organizations would be uh, in the target zone for, for Trump. But clearly, this is not a president who puts together the liberal international order in the way that other past presidents have. But it should be pointed out that many past presidents have picked and chosen among the pieces of the liberal order and emphasized some more than the others. Okay. Well, you know, a lot has been written about the kind of leadership role that the United States has played. You have argued it as well during the period following the Second World War. Certainly since uh, the Bill Clinton administration and his foreign policy, he and others have referred to the United States as the indispensable nation. Our colleague uh, John Eikenberry uh, at Princeton has seen the United States as the hegemonic power in the system. So how does the system then respond to the America first kind of approach and its impact on you know, its leadership role in the system we currently have? Well, this is going to be an interesting, um, what might be called a natural experiment in international politics. And I'm not sure it's one we really want to run, but we're going to be running it because 
I think in many areas of American leadership, the United States will be leaning back rather than leaning forward. Some of the areas I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, where the Trump administration is not going to exercise the kind of active leadership in building international institutions or expanding trade agreements and the like. As you mentioned, and I believe the phrase you picked up is the Madeleine Albright phrase of the indispensable, the one indispensable nation. And there are many other leaders and politicians in the United States who have talked about American exceptionalism and the need for American leadership on both sides of the political spectrum. You could take two views of this. One is by constantly asserting its leadership, the United States has allowed other countries to free ride in supporting the liberal order, including countries that have benefited from especially the economic aspects of the liberal economic order or the world order. And that would include China. That would include many of the emerging economies, for example. The other side would say, well, they're not ready to exercise leadership. They're not going to hold up the system. Therefore, if the United States is not there, we'll be moving to a G0 world in which there will be fragmentation and potentially greater disorder. Uh, as I said, it's going to be a natural experiment if the Trump administration does, in fact, decide to act with less leadership or even as a disruptive influence on certain aspects of the liberal international order. In the chapter you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, I argue that liberalism defined in a fairly broad fashion, which is as I would prefer to define it, actually has more support in the system than the United States sometimes cares to believe. And I think, in fact, countries that have an investment and a stake in the liberal order from the case of the Europeans in areas like human rights and uh, international institutions to China in, in areas of international economic liberalism and free trade and investment to other emerging economies, to the Latin American countries, which have long played a fairly substantial role in human rights and other areas of international institution building. I think there are other pillars there, whether they will be able to cohere Mm -hmm. and collaborate in a way that could fully substitute for the United States, I think, is certainly a question. But to think that without the United States, there are no supports in the form of other governments, in the form of non-governmental organizations, in the form of multinational corporations, for that matter, for liberalism in its various guises, I think, is, is an overstatement. And I think American politicians, American foreign policy experts have made that argument too forcefully. Um, but as I say, we'll be seeing it in an experimental setting, if you will, whether in fact that is the case or not, probably in the coming years. Hmm. So given our good friend uh, Tom Wright from Brookings suggested right. in the heat of that election process that Trump seemed to be taking a wrecking ball to U.S. foreign policy. That was his phrase. So how do the allies in particular, given some of his criticisms, how do the allies respond, be it in Europe or in Asia, how do they respond to this Trump foreign policy? Well, I think Trump looked like much more of a wrecking ball during the campaign mm -hmm. than he is probably going to appear post-inauguration, and we already see backpedaling on certain policy stances like the One China policy and other policy stances. So it's important to note, I, I spoke earlier about the beliefs of the president as being important and having what fixed beliefs he might have. It's important to note, he is a political figure in a set of political institutions which are going to constrain him in many ways. He cannot set foreign policy on his own. So there's the question of Congress, which has a very different view of trade relations than Trump does. Whether they will take him on if he takes a more protectionist direction, I don't know. And there are various domestic constituencies 
that will push back as well. For example, business, when it comes to any effort to dismantle the entire infrastructure of economic liberalism. You've pointed to another set of actors that can present pushback uh, and uh, an unyielding international environment, which is allies, mm -hmm. powers that are competitors with us, partially, like China. Uh, the international environment is not completely pliable, obviously. <laughs> so I think each of those sets of actors, whether it is our allies in Japan and Europe and elsewhere in the world, or our competitors like China and Russia, uh, or the emerging economies, some of whom have grown closer to the United States, like India, mm -hmm. all of them have lever or, or to take an even more interesting example, Mexico, which might appear to be in a very weak position vis-a-vis -vis the United States, but actually does have leverage over U.S. foreign policy to a degree on issues like cross-border security, uh, cooperation on drug trafficking and other security-related issues. All of these actors have some levers to use vis-a-vis -vis the United States in bargaining with the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think the interesting question is, where is, the, where is the bargain going to be struck? And if the bargain that the United States insists upon is not acceptable to some of these actors, do they move on to other outside options that are less friendly to the global order as we know it. And here, those could be uh, unilateralism of their own. Mm -hmm. It could be regionalism of various kinds or regional arrangements of various kinds. Uh, it could be making deals among themselves that exclude the United States in various ways. So, so two, two parts to Tom Wright's observation, which I think is a, you know, was certainly accurate during the campaign. Is Trump going to be, and the Trump team, if you will, the Trump entourage, going to be constrained domestically in ways that we're starting to see but might become more binding over time? And then how do other international actors respond? And will that pushback create a different trajectory for American foreign policy? So I think both have the potential for shifting where Trump may want to go and the Trump team may want to go with foreign policy. But once again, we, we still are in early days. Early days, right. But l let's turn, because you already pointed out a variation. He seemed to have a quite aggressive foreign policy towards China initially, the phone call yeah. to the Taiwan president, which hadn't been done for decades. Uh, right. the, and the one China policy would seem to be a bargaining chip. And then he backed away uh, when he actually had the phone call with Xi Jinping. Setting China policy in its immediate context, how does Trump deal, not just with China, but how does Trump deal with the Korean Peninsula, which seems to be, according to reports, the Obama administration and the president himself seem to suggest to Trump, this is your immediate problem and you right. have to deal with it. Well, that's an interesting, you know, that's an interesting question. It's been a conundrum for a successive American administration since the 1990s. I mean, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all of them. Uh, nothing seems to be able to shake the North Korean leadership's intention to obtain nuclear weapons, which they've done, and now to obtain delivery systems that can be increasingly threatening to their neighbors and to the United States. And what one does about that is not entirely clear. Every time every administration has weighed all of the options, ranging from military intervention of some kind against either missile sites or suspected uh, sites of nuclear weapons to more positive incentives for the North Koreans and efforts to get them to abandon their nuclear program through economic carrots of various kinds. None of them 
seem either feasible or none of them have worked when they've been attempted. So mm -hmm. it's, it's clear to me that the Trump administration, if they're listening to people who've had experience with North Korea, are going to face the same sets of conundrums. Now, how that feeds into China policy is interesting. The United States has always believed that China holds the ultimate leverage, economic leverage, over North Korea. The China view is uh, they don't have that leverage. Uh, as one commentator who was quoted in The Times today stated, I believe it was in The New York Times, a Chinese policymaker said, North Korea is a rusty lock and we do not have the key. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Chinese, of course, are saying, well, we can't do this. And just today and yesterday, the Chinese leadership were actually sounding fairly alarmist about the way U.S. policy and North Korean policy were kind of lurching down the path toward confrontation. Now, maybe that will give the, um, the Chinese more incentive to do more with North Korea, but if they are indeed telling the truth and they don't have the leverage mm -hmm. to bring the North Koreans around, or they're not willing to exercise that leverage at the risk of a collapse of the North Korean regime, which is the surmise of American policymakers, that leaves us with you know, very, very few options. And an increasingly uh, risky situation in Northeast Asia. There are now Japanese policymakers talking about the need to be able to strike North Korea preemptively if they mm -hmm. should be threatening Japan. Uh, the South Korean government, obviously, is in the thick of all this, in the midst of all this, with tense relations with Japan. Uh, an election coming up, probably, and the possible impeachment of a president, which I think is going to be decided today so or tomorrow. Yep. So it, it, Northeast Asia right now is looking um, extremely volatile, I think, even by most recent standards. And U.S.-China relations are, in many ways, a critical stabilizer, along with U.S.-Japanese treaty relationships. And U.S.-China relations are also, at the moment, rather uncertain. So okay. um, complicated, difficult situation. It'll be an interesting test for the Trump foreign policy and a foreign policy team which is very untested and frankly not fully in place yet. So I, you know, I, I'd like to sound more optimistic, but I can't say uh, that I am. But then North Korea, you know, it's been bumping. This problem has been bumping along for a long time, as I said, and one suspects it will continue to bump along. One has to be worried, though, that a North Korean provocation at some point will be met by a response that you know leads to escalation rather than some kind of resolution. And I take it uh, the beginning of the shipments of the THAAD defensive missile system haven't yes. exactly improved no. the tenor between U.S. and China or no. China and Japan in terms of... Well, in China, South Korea in particular, yeah, China and, has right. actually been exercising economic, essentially economic sanctions, though they don't, they call them non-official. They basically have pushed private actors or quasi-private actors in China to sanction South Korea for going along with the THAAD anti-missile system. Right. So many, many things wrong. Plus, there is now a recent report that North Korea has been selling nuclear-related technology again on the market. And so you can just see things going off the rails on various dimensions with different actors. Uh, and the United States team, if you will, yep. Japan, the United States, and Korea are not all on board uh, South Korea's policy, hardline policy toward North Korea in the current administration in South Korea may change if there's a change of administration in South Korea toward the left. Mm -hmm. um, Japan could go in a more hardline direction at the same time. And the two countries don't get along particularly well together, even though they're both allies of the United States. So right. um, very, very complicated situation for the U.S. to manage in the best of times. And it's not the best of times. <laughs> <laughs> 
speaking of that, let me turn uh, it briefly to the other major rival and a very confused picture as to exactly either Trump's personal relationships or, more broadly, the new administration's relationships with Russia. Can you make any sense, <laughs> sense of this relationship, or are we just kind of in the wind uh, with respect to what is the prospect for negotiations or the relationship going forward? Well, there are so many dimensions now to the Russia issue. Um, mm -hmm. And curiously, the outcome, despite the, I think, clearly documented by our intelligence agency's efforts by Russia to interfere in the American election and to elect Donald Trump, the outcome may be, ironically, uh, not one that Russia would like because, for two reasons, he has made at least one half of the U.S. political spectrum more anti-Russian than it was, which is the Democratic side. Uh, and he may force the Trump administration to become much more skeptical and much more uh, distanced from Russia than Trump personally seemed to want to be, mm -hmm. simply for political reasons, so that they do not seem to be beholden to the Russians. And looming behind all of this, of course, are what Nicholas Kristof in today's New York Times said, the, connecting the dots, the, the number of dots that link the Trump entourage to Russia and to Putin and his entourage, the dots keep growing. And so that, that is out there being investigated by the, primarily by the Senate, both intelligence committees, uh, by the FBI. Um, the Senate Intelligence Committee investigated seems to be the most credible at the moment Mm -hmm. There could still be the appointment of a special prosecutor by the Justice Department, though the, that has not occurred yet. So that's kind of dribbling, drip, 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 kind of, you know, all along while Trump is trying to deal with Russia. Meanwhile, Russia itself is probing and testing a United States, which is in somewhat disarray with regard to Russia and Russian policy. So not a good situation for the Trump administration. It's going to be very, very complicated for them to negotiate this. Um, mm -hmm. So many question marks and, and an unwillingness on the part of the president to essentially do what I think many Republicans secretly wished he would have done, which is to say, uh, look, this was a terrible thing Russia did, trying to interfere in our elections. I accept the Intelligence Committee reading of this. Let's get to the bottom of it, you know, get to the bottom of it and go take the investigation wherever it leads and clear the air and you know, do, do a reset, if you will, on the American side of Russian policy. Trump has refused to do that, mm -hmm. always consistently refused to do that. And it is a puzzle, and it's a puzzle that makes many, I think, in the U.S. Uh, political scene more suspicious of these possible connections between the Trump entourage, the Trump campaign, and the Russians, because the, the president simply will not do what would clear the air, you know, dispense with this issue once and for all. So, so let me turn back in the last moments here in our discussion with a look at the state of the liberal order. In September, you released a discussion paper series with a number of colleagues on the global order and the new regionalism. And I guess the question I have, you know, with respect to this initiative, this effort is, do you see uh, yourself, regionalism, as a way to sustain the liberal order in the face of at least 
the current administration and some of the disarray and chaos that seems to have been generated by the change in uh, U.S. leadership? Well, it's interesting you would put it that way, because in fact, the way we framed this uh, project, which obviously took off before anyone knew that Donald Trump was going to be president, uh, we we initiated the project, uh, was to look back at the older arguments that had been prominent in the 1990s about regionalism being a building block or a stumbling block Mm -hmm. for global multilateral arrangements, particularly in trade, but not only in trade. So we looked across a number of issue areas. As you know, in these sets of discussion papers, we saw various pathways in which regionalism as it was taking shape, including Chinese-led regionalism in Asia, Mm -hmm. as being compatible with the global order if certain steps were taken at both the global level and the regional level and and make them complementary rather than competitive or competitive at least in a beneficial way. Um, Now, given the change in the United States, there is this question of maybe, as you seem to suggest, regional liberalism or liberal regionalism might be a way of sustaining the liberal order if there's deterioration at the global level. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not something that I had actually thought. Certain things that the Trump administration has done, one in particular, has removed one of the challenges to global order that we picked up on in the project, which is the mega regional agreements, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the uh, Transatlantic Partnership, both of which seem to be dead in the water. One of them, the U.S. has withdrawn from. The other one is simply probably not going to go anywhere because of both U.S. reluctance and European resistance. So the mega regional threat has gone pretty much. Right. On the other fronts, One could imagine in areas like human rights, certainly, that uh, you could sustain vibrant human rights uh, regimes. But if you look around the world, the one regional order that is consistently liberal across nearly all of the issue areas we discussed, it's the European. Right. And the European liberal order is in itself some disarray at the moment. I think it's fair to say I'm not as pessimistic as some about Europe post-Brexit, but it's clear that Europe is not in its strongest position and it's facing a genuine challenge with upcoming elections, with Russian meddling also in the European context. So in the other regions, liberalism certainly is there. I mean, certainly in Latin America to a degree in Asia, at least on the economic front, Mm -hmm. although whether a Chinese-led regional order in Asia would be consistently liberal or not is, is a point we could argue about. Uh, So, yes, if if things really go badly and really fragment at the global order or the U.S. and other countries, not just the United States, the United States disengages and other countries turn to a form of defensive regionalism Mm -hmm. in the face of U.S. disengagement. It's conceivable that that, those would be the, you know, the islands, the bastions of liberalism that remain waiting for a change at the global level based on political change in the United States and other parts of the world. I don't know. Uh, that's an interesting, interesting way of thinking about the future. I have to say that would definitely be, if not second best, maybe third best or fourth <laughs> best in my view. <laughs> so, uh, I wouldn't want to bank on it and I wouldn't want to promote it. But, uh, but my, my concern is that if the U.S. pulls back and we enter a G0 sort of world, there would be regional fragmentation of a not very beneficial sort. Right and fragmentation and fraying of institutions that have been very valuable, like the International Monetary Fund in financial crises, the World Trade Organization in preventing backsliding into protectionism and the like. And, uh, and they could not be really replaced 
by what are outside of Europe relatively modest regional arrangements at this point in time. Right. Well, thank you very much, Miles, for your insights, because I think this will really help the audience understand uh, significantly more about the liberal order than they knew before listening to the podcast. So uh, thank you again, and uh, I look forward uh, to future uh, conversations as we watch the Trump administration roll out its American foreign policy. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Alan. I enjoyed it. And uh, yes, we're all waiting here in Washington with even greater anticipation than you, I can assure you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Miles. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.